before we dive into today's message, I want to just pause as a church and to uh, pray for the city of Uvalde, the victims of the horrible evil that has occurred in our country this week. And um, I know it's been heavy on my heart all week, and I have no doubt it's been heavy on yours as well. So I just want to pause and allow uh, you to just the opportunity to pray, and then I'll close this in just a moment. Father, our hearts are heavy before you today. Lord, it is so difficult to look at this world we live in and the evil that exists. And Father, we, we know we live in a fallen world, but every time something tragic like this school shooting happens, we are just reminded of how depraved our world is. And Father, we, we want to lift up the families in that community. And Father, we pray for your comfort, your grace, your mercy for them. Lord, we can't even begin to imagine the heartache and the pain that they're going through. And Father, we pray for the church in Uvalde, Texas. That, Father, that your people would be a beacon of hope. Because we know that our hope doesn't lie in anything but Jesus Christ. And we pray that the church would be a place of hope, a place of love, a place of healing. Lord, we know that the, the, the pain doesn't end. It doesn't go away. But yet, Father, your gospel reigns and your truth reigns and I pray that it would be so evident in that community and we lift them up to you now in Jesus name amen well church if you're new here my name's Eric and I am the pastor at Freedom and we are in this in a series on the book of uh, book in the book of Genesis Genesis 37 through 50 on the life of Joseph now, if you are new here, one of the things we typically do is we walk through either sections of the Bible or books of the Bible. And so um, we spent about a year in the Gospel of Mark, just walking through the life of Jesus, and now we're uh, in the life of Joseph, walking through his life as well. And we are in Genesis chapter 41, and Genesis 41 is a pivotal chapter in the life of Joseph. In fact, it's one of the most pivotal chapters in the entire Bible. And we see in the life of Joseph right now at this time, he's about 30 years old. So if you remember, he was sold into slavery at 13. So nearly half of Joseph's life has been spent in slavery or prison. Half of his life in slavery or prison. Just think for a moment about what Joseph has gone through. Joseph is a 17-year-old teenager, had a dream. In fact, he had two dreams, and in those dreams, he's, he saw his family bowing down to him, told his family, and his jealous, hateful, murderous brothers decided they would kill the dream by killing the dreamer. Instead, they opted to sell Joseph into slavery. Joseph, in slavery, ends up in the land of Egypt, in the house of Potiphar. Potiphar's wife, 
falsely accuses Joseph, has him arrested. He ends up in an Egyptian prison. Then we get this glimmer of hope that we looked at last week. Two prisoners arrive in this prison, Pharaoh's cupbearer and Pharaoh's baker. They both had dreams as well. And Joseph interprets their dreams and asks the cupbearer to remember him when he's released, when he gets back into his position as cupbearer. Well, Joseph's dreams, the, the, his interpretation came true. The cupbearer's release set free, and Joseph waits to be released. Unfortunately, the cupbearer forgot about Joseph. And then chapter 41 begins. And it begins with four dreadful words. And it says this, after two whole years. After two whole years. What that means is Joseph, for two years, has been languishing in prison. For two years, Joseph has been waiting, hoping, praying for God to come through. For two years, Joseph has longed to be released from prison, falsely accused, stolen out of his homeland in, in the land of Canaan from his very people, the tribe of Jacob. And for two years, hours turn into days. Days turn into weeks. Weeks turn into months. Months turn into years. 17,520 hours, 730 days, 104 weeks, 24 months that Joseph has waited. We've all been there, haven't we? We've all had those moments, those times in our lives where we've waited for God to come through, where we've waited for something to happen, for God to move, for him to do something, anything sometimes, right? And I don't know about you, but that waiting feels like forever. And sometimes, sometimes it even feels like God has forgotten us. You ever been there? And all of us could tell our own story about how we've been there, about how we've waited on God to come through, how we've longed for, hoped for, prayed for God to show up, God to move, and we've had to wait. For some of you, it has to do with, man, you've been longing for a job, and you've been looking and, and interview after interview after interview, and like literally nothing comes through. Others of us, it's, it's within our marriages or in, in relationships with those close to us, and you're just praying for a breakthrough, and the more you pray, it seems like the worse it gets. Some of you, man, you are longing for Mr. Right, and the only person that comes along is Mr. Wrong. And we wait, and we wait, and others of us, man, we're dealing with hurt and, and disease and pain and depression and anxiety, and we're asking God, God, take it away. Nothing seems to happen. You ever been there? That's where Joseph is. For two years, two years, Joseph is waiting. He's forgotten by, about by the cupbearer for two whole years. But here's what I want you to hear. God did not forget Joseph. God did not forget about Joseph. In fact, God causes the cupbearer to remember Joseph by giving Pharaoh a dream of his own. Look at Genesis chapter 41, beginning in verse 1. And it says this, Now, after two whole years, Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing by the Nile. And behold, 
There came up out of the Nile seven cows, attractive and plump, and they fed in the reed of the grass. This reminds us of that rec tech that's going to be given away, doesn't it? Man, it's good stuff. And behold, seven other cows, ugly and thin, came up out of the Nile after them and stood by the other cows on the bank of the Nile. And the ugly, thin cows ate up the seven attractive, plump cows. And Pharaoh awoke. And he fell asleep, and he dreamed a second time. And behold, seven ears of grain, plump and good, were growing on one stalk. And behold, after them sprouted seven ears, thin and blighted by the east wind. And the thin ears swallowed up the seven plump, full ears, and Pharaoh awoke. And behold, it was a dream. In verse 8, so in the morning... His spirit was troubled. And so what does Pharaoh do? He sends and he calls out all the musicians, uh, musicians, magicians of Egypt and all its wise men. Pharaoh told them his dreams, but there was none who could interpret them. Verse 9, then, then the cupbearer said to Pharaoh, I remember my offenses today. And when Pharaoh was angry with his servants and put me and the chief baker in custody, in the house of the captain of the guard, we dreamed on the same night, he and I, each having its own dream with its own interpretation. And in verse 12, and a young Hebrew was there with us, a servant of the captain of the guard. When, he to- when we told him, he interpreted our dreams to us, giving an interpretation to each man according to his dream. And as he interpreted to us, it came about. I was restored to my office, and the baker was hanged. Now, here in this this text, we see Joseph, every move in Joseph's life. Think about this. Every move that's happened for the last 13 years in Joseph's life, from the pit to Potiphar's house to prison, has all been in an effort to move Joseph closer and closer and closer to Pharaoh. And now we find that, jo- that Pharaoh needs what Joseph has, the ability to interpret dreams. Look at verse 14. When Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, they quickly brought him up out of the pit. And when he had shaved, when, when he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came in before Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have had a dream, and there is no one who can interpret it. I have heard it said of you that you hear a dream, and you can interpret it. Now, I don't know about you, but let's stop, pause right there. If I were Joseph, I'd be absolutely, 100%, I can totally interpret your dream. Wouldn't you do that? Like if your boss came to you and said, hey, I hear you've got the skills, and if you can do this, then you'll get a promotion. How many of you are going to say yes, whether you have the skills or not? You're going to lie to your boss. I get it. But, here, but what did Joseph do? Look what he does, verse 16. He answered, no, it's not me. Wait, what? get this guy back in prison he goes no it's not me god though will give will give pharaoh a favorable answer so joseph in this moment he has the opportunity and says "Ah, listen i can't i can't interpret it but god can god can now he is a slave coming out of prison and he tells pharaoh the most powerful man of the world at the time no i can't do it but god can pharaoh didn't believe in god pharaoh thought he was a god and then in verses 17 through, I think, 24-ish, what happens is Pharaoh tells Joseph his dream. 
lays out the same dream we just read in those first 13 verses, tells him the dream. He says there's seven good cows and there's seven thin cows and, those, and then there's, there's seven healthy ears of, of grain. There's seven unhealthy ears of grain. And then Joseph interprets the dream for Pharaoh and then tells Pharaoh how to act in order to, uh, in order to respond to these dreams. He says the seven good cows and the seven good ears are seven years of plenty. The seven bad cows and the seven unhealthy ears are seven years of famine. And then Joseph advises Pharaoh that what you need to do is you need to take some person in your kingdom, some person in Egypt, and put him in charge of storing grain during the years of plenty so that there will be enough food at the year, during the years of famine. We'll look at verse 37. This proposal, the one I just laid out for you, pleased Pharaoh and all of his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, can we find a man like this in whom the Spirit of God? Can we find someone who has the Spirit of God within them in in the land of Egypt? Because then Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you. You shall be over my house, and all of my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards to the throne will I be greater than you. Now, we often read this, and we see this in in Joseph's life, and we often read this as the big payoff that Joseph has been waiting for. Like, this is the moment that he's been longing for. This is the time he's remained faithful to God. He's done everything he can do to stay connected to God. And now God is rewarding him by moving him from the prison to the palace. That's the way we often read this. It's this moment in the story, and it feels like those feel-good movies, doesn't it? Like, the way way I often read this story is that it feels like those movies, you know, where at the end where the hero overcomes everything and everybody's yelling, Rudy, Rudy, Rudy. Like, that's what this feels like. The whole land of Egypt is going, Joseph, Joseph, Joseph. This is where our Sunday school teachers, when we were kids, would look at us and say, hey, kids, listen, boys and girls, if you would just remember this next time somebody mistreats you, God will reward you. Now, don't get me wrong. This story is a huge story about God's providential hand moving and working in Joseph's life. That is absolutely what's going on. We know that's what's going on. And it is encouraging in this story to see how God works, even in the midst of, even in the, midst of the most difficult circumstances that Joseph is facing. facing. God is working. God is moving. God is accomplishing his purposes for good. It's like, it's like uh, uh, Romans 8, 28. For we know that those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Like that's, we're seeing that verse played out in the life of Joseph. But here's what I find interesting. The way Moses writes the rest of this narrative, the rest of this story, he's showing us a direct contrast between where Joseph started and where Joseph ends up. He shows us this, this contrast, and Moses, I think, intention, I do believe intentionally wrote this so that we would see where Joseph's life started 
in the land of Canaan with his family and where it ends up in the land of Egypt with Pharaoh. Because the irony of this story is that Joseph is still a slave. He's not a freed man. He is a slave in Egypt. He's as much of a slave in chapter 41 as he was in chapter 37 when his brothers sold him to the Ishmaelites. He's still just as much of a slave, but here's the difference. Because his new master is the leader of the free world, the free world, he's leader of the world, most powerful man in all of the world, we view this story differently. But the reality is he is still a slave. So let me show you real briefly some of these contrasts Moses makes in Joseph's life and his story. Look at verse 41. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I've set you over all the land of Egypt. And look at this. Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand, and he put it on Joseph's hand. And then he clothed him in garments of fine linen and put a gold chain around his neck. Now, do you remember what Joseph's father did, Jacob? He took his coat, this coat of many colors, and put it on Joseph. He gave Joseph the finest clothes he could give him because he was his favorite. So I wonder, in this moment, if Joseph was thinking about that day that his dad gave him that coat. I wonder, as Pharaoh is putting on him the finest clothes that Egypt has to offer, was he thinking about the day that his brother stripped him of that coat and sold him into slavery. But there's another contrast. There's a contrast in Joseph's dreams. Remember back in chapter 37, Joseph has these dreams, and these dreams say that his brothers and his family are going to bow down to him. They're going to, they're going to somehow, some way, come before him and bow down. Now, that, that was when Joseph said that, his brothers and his dad, they were offended. In fact, his brothers were so angry they wanted to kill him that it resulted in them selling him into slavery. But listen to what happens in Egypt in verse 43. Now Pharaoh made Joseph ride in the second chariot. And they called out before him. What did they call out before Joseph? Say, what did they call out before Joseph? Bow the knee. So every time Joseph would ride through Egypt, the Egyptians would have to bow down to Joseph. Do you see the contrast that Moses is showing us here? We have jo jo Joseph's own family being offended, but Pharaoh having no such reservation. Pharaoh, in fact, sees Joseph's interpretation of the dream as a word sent directly from God to save Pharaoh and the Egyptian people. So he commands that everyone bow down to Joseph, but it doesn't stop there. Moses also contrasts in the changing of name. In verse, 40, in verse 45, Pharaoh changes Joseph's name. He changes his, his name to Zaphonath Paneah which we don't know the meaning of that, but more than likely it was some pagan name uh, having to do with a pagan god. And we see th that this reminds us of the other times in Genesis where names were changed. Abram was changed to Abraham, Sariah to Sarah, Jacob to Israel. See, in each and every one of those name changes, it was God who was doing the changing. It was God who was giving the new name to his covenant people. And all of those new names dealt with 
the covenant that God had made to his people. But Joseph's name change goes in the opposite direction. Joseph's name change was given by Pharaoh in order to mask or to alter his Hebrew identity. See, what Pharaoh is doing in this moment, he is trying to strip Joseph of his Hebrew identity so that he will then take upon himself and conform to an Egyptian identity. That's what's happening here. He changes his name. But then there's more contrast. Joseph's wife. And and we discover later on in chapter 41, and I encourage you to go read 41 for yourself, but we discover that Pharaoh gives Joseph an Egyptian wife. Now, if you know anything about the patriarchs, they did not want any of their heirs marrying pagan women. And Joseph here is given an Egyptian pagan wife. That reminds us of chapter 38 with Judah, doesn't it? Remember, Judah also married a pagan wife. And we know the problems that all came with that. But Joseph and Judah both break the patriarchal tradition. But unlike Judah, who did it out of his own sin, Joseph, because he is a slave, has no choice but to take the wife for himself. He doesn't have a choice in the matter. And see, at every point, this is, this is what I'm trying to get to, at every point throughout this narrative, we are reminded again and again and again that this, Egypt, is not where Joseph belongs. That Egypt is not Joseph's home. That God, yes, is working all things for good, but this isn't Joseph's big payday for faithfulness. Joseph is still away from his family. Joseph is still a slave. And yet, God is working and moving. Because here's what happens. After 20 years, right at the end of the, of the, of the plenty season, those seven years, Joseph has been, in a, in, he's been separated from the promised land for 20 years. Joseph's master is Egyptian. His wife is Egyptian. His in-laws are Egyptian. His name is Egyptian. His entire world from age 17 to 37 is Egyptian. But now, now in this moment, 20 years later, Joseph has an opportunity to reveal to us his, uh, his true identity and where his true allegiance falls with the birth of his own children. See, had Joseph accepted his Egyptian identity, and furthermore, had he rejected his Hebrew identity, then Joseph would have given his sons Egyptian names. Look what happens in verse 50. Before the year of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph. Esenath, the daughter of Potiphar, priest of On, bore them to him. Verse 51, Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh, for he said, God has made me forget all my hardship in all my father's house. And then 52, the name of the second, he named Ephraim, for God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. What does Joseph do? In this moment, 
Joseph refuses to give his sons Egyptian names. Instead, he gives them Hebrew names, and in doing so, he is identifying himself with God's covenant people. He's identifying himself with the family of Jacob. He's remembering his own family. You see, as a slave, Joseph had no choice to, but to receive the name and the wife that Pharaoh gave him. However, at the birth of his sons, he now has a choice. And his choice is to remain loyal to the people of God. His choice is to remain loyal to his father, Jacob. So Joseph names his firstborn son Manasseh, which means forget. And he says, God has made me forget my hardship. God has made me forget my hardship. Now here's, what, here's the point. What Joseph is not saying is that he's forgotten his father. That's not what he's saying at all. He's not saying that he's forgotten the covenant community of God. He's not saying that at all. What he's saying is, is that God, by his grace and by his mercy and by his love, has allowed him to forget the hardship. The hardship that he's faced in Egypt as a result of the sin of his brothers. That's why later on in chapter 50, he's going to be able to look at his brothers and say, what you intended for evil, God intended for good. Why? Because God was able to allow, through his grace, Joseph the ability to forget the hardship and pain of his past. And see, the reality is some of us are carrying on that hardship and that pain of our past, and we can't shake it, we can't get over it, and it is eating at us, and it is destroying us, and it is, and it is, it is wrecking us. But here's what Joseph has done. Joseph has decided and chosen to be defined not by the difficulties of his past. He has chosen to be defined by the promises of God. And those promises, Joseph knows, define and dictate and direct his future. So Joseph said, listen, my past is not going to define me. And some of us need to say the same thing. Listen, my past is not going to define me. I'm going to be defined by the promises of God. I'm going to be defined by who God says that I am, not who the world says that I am, not who some coach or some parent or somebody in my past told me I was. I'm going to be defined by who God says that I am. And that's exactly what Joseph does. But then he names his second son Ephraim, which means fruitful. And he says the reason he named him fruit, Ephraim is because God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. In saying that, God says, in saying that God had made him fruitful in the land of my affliction, what Joseph is doing is he is rejecting Egypt and all that it has brought him. Let me explain it this way. As Pharaoh's second in command, Joseph has the best that Egypt can offer at his disposal. Anything he wants, he can have. All the land, all the houses, the finest clothes, the jewels, the, the entertainment, the food, whatever Joseph wants, he can have. I mean, he is a slave, but he's living a life of opulent wealth. However, what does he call this place? The land of my affliction. In other words, Joseph is saying, yes, God has done these things in my life here in Egypt, but this is not my home. 
He's saying, my home is the promised land of Abraham. My home is the land that, that God promised my great-grandfather Abraham. That's my home. And so he's rejecting this, he's rejecting all that Egypt has offered him. In naming his two sons, what Joseph is doing, he's touching on two key themes that we see throughout Genesis and really throughout the entire Old Testament. The themes of covenant and land. First, Joseph identifies himself with God's covenant people. He names his son, he gives his sons Hebrew names. In other words, Joseph is saying, I may be a slave in the land of Egypt. I may be a slave to Pharaoh. I may be second in command, but I am ultimately a Hebrew, a child of God, part of God's community, and a servant of Yahweh, regardless of what Pharaoh says about me. And the second thing he does, he identifies with the land of promise. He identifies himself with the land that God had promised Abraham. And he says, this land of Egypt is not my home. It is a land of affliction. So land and covenant, we see this right here in this text. But then, then at the end of chapter 41, we see God's providential plan come into focus. Everything that's been moving towards this moment for the last 20 years in Joseph's life comes abundantly clear at the end of chapter uh, 41. Look at verse 56. So, when the famine had spread all over the land, Joseph opened up the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians, for the famine was severe, severe in the land of Egypt. Verse 57, Moreover, all the earth came to Egypt to Joseph to buy grain because the famine was severe over all the earth. Now, here's what I want you to see. Now, I want you to, this is so amazing. I just want you to see how God works. I want you to see how big God is. God knew. God knew in his sovereignty, in his knowing of all things, God knew that there would be a famine in the land that would be so severe that it would, be, that it would, it would cover the entire earth. It would impact everyone. So what does God do? God knew that this famine would come. God knew that his people were not a nation yet. They were just a family, the family of Jacob. And he knew that they would not have the resources to survive the famine without intervention. But God also knew that Egypt was a powerful enough nation, a large enough nation that had the resources to store grain in order to save God's covenant people. So then, in God's providence, God uses the laws of nature. God uses man's free will in order to accomplish his purposes. So what does God do? God foreshadowed in a dream to Joseph when he was 17 years old. And that dream led Joseph's brothers to sell him into slavery. As a slave, Joseph landed in Egypt in Potiphar's house. Then God protected Joseph and prevented Joseph from committing adultery with Potiphar's wife. And he orchestrated Joseph's imprisonment in the very prison that Pharaoh's servants would be. So that Joseph could interpret their dreams. And all of this occurred 
so that the cupbearer would remember Joseph when God sent Pharaoh a dream that Pharaoh and all of his magicians could not interpret. Joseph's ability to interpret Pharaoh's dream would ultimately lead to his exaltation in Egypt. And Egypt, get this, would become the one place in the entire world where God's covenant people could buy grain and survive. That is God's providence at work. See, we don't know all the things that are going on in our lives. Joseph had no clue of this until later in his life, until his brothers show up. But in the midst of it, those circumstances had to be weighing him down. And he had no clue that God was doing all of that in order to have Joseph in the seat in the one nation that could save the world. Let me sum it up this way. This is how big God is. God, God sent Joseph to Egypt. Not to become rich and powerful. Not to become second in command. No, he sent Joseph to Egypt in order to preserve Jacob's family that would ultimately be preserving the promised Messiah so that it would ensure the salvation of God's people. Both in the short term, Judah's family that would become the nation of Israel, and in the long term, each and every one of us as followers of Jesus, the Lion of Judah. So when God's orchestrating all of this, guess who he had in mind? You and I. And every single follower that has followed Jesus, that is following Jesus, and will follow Jesus. Folks, I don't know about you, but that blows my mind how big God is. How magnificent God is. How his plan works in such incredible ways that God in his sovereignty and in his providence would orchestrate all of this just so that you and I could have a relationship with God. Now there are a couple of, couple of takeaways I want to close with that we see in this text. The first one is this. Do not conform to the pattern of this world. Paul wrote to the church in Rome and he said, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what, the, what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. See, Joseph, for all practical purposes, was an Egyptian. Yet, he never lived by the pattern of Egypt. Joseph, though in Egypt, remained faithful to God. He never compromised his convictions in order to conform to the culture that was around him. Joseph never bought in to the lifestyle of the Egyptians. And listen, church, you and I are living in Egypt right now. We are, this is our Egypt. This is... Our land of affliction. We, th this world is not our home. We are strangers and aliens. In fact, Jesus said, you are not of this world. I have chosen you out of this world. And yet so often we as followers of Christ get so sucked into the patterns of this world, the ways of this world, that we look no different than the world around us. 
And we see in Joseph's life how he did it. He did not conform to the pattern of this world. He lived above it. He lived differently. He remained faithful to God. But far too many followers of Jesus Christ live more like the world and the culture around them than they do as obedient disciples of Christ. And see, church, what this world desperately needs, what this world desperately needs is a church that will actually follow Jesus. What this world desperately needs are Christians that will take that name seriously and be the hands and feet of Jesus. That's what this world needs more than anything. This world is hurting. People are suffering, oppressed, tired, lost, hopeless. And listen, church, it is our job not to isolate ourselves from them, but to run to them. And we can only do that if we refuse to be conformed to the pattern of this world. Which leads to the second takeaway I want you to see, and that is this. That God wants to use you for His redemptive purposes. God wants to use you, and you, and you, and you, and all of us for His redemptive purposes. See, in God's sovereignty... He sent Joseph to Egypt in order to save his covenant people. And in God's sovereignty, he has placed you where you live, work, and play in order to carry the gospel to a lost and dying world. Like the place where you work, sovereignly chosen by God. And in his providence, he got you exactly where he wants you. The neighborhood, the house that you live in. Through his providence, God put you there so that you can carry the gospel. So that you can be the hands and feet of Jesus. Listen, the mission and calling of Christians, our calling is not to seek safety. It's not to pursue comfort. Not in this land of affliction. I mean, God, if we don't know that this is a land of affliction, then, then, then I don't know what to tell us. Just look around. This world is broken. It is depraved. It is the land of our affliction. Yet so often we get so sucked up into it and want to, want to, to, to miss out and we, we lose sight of this calling that God has given us. We get so caught up in the affairs of the world that we lose our calling. And that calling is to seek and to love the lost, the hurting, the oppressed. That calling is to follow Jesus and be his hands and feet. So how? How do we become his hands and feet? What does it mean to become the hands and feet of Jesus? I want to give you three questions to reflect on in order to answer that one question. What did Jesus do? Actually, where did Jesus go? What did Jesus do? And how did Jesus do it? Where did Jesus go? Throughout the Gospels, we see Jesus primarily in three, go into three different places. One, alone. He'd get alone for prayer, for rest, for spending time with his Father. 
second place we see Jesus go infrequently is with his disciples, his followers, his closest friends. That's the community that he was a part of. And the third place we see Jesus going is to the lost, to the hurting, to the sick, to the marginalized, to the far from God. Those three places are where Jesus went. And if you and I want to be the hands and feet of Jesus, we have to do the same. We have to be willing to get alone. We have to be in community with others. And we have to go where the sinners are in order to reach them. Now, can we have an honest conversation? Okay, thanks. Jim, Jim and I will have an honest conversation. The rest of you just get to join it. Here's the reality. I think we're pretty good at number two, community. The second one on that list. I think we're pretty good. We like to hang out with each other. You know, we like to hang out with people in our church. We like to hang out with other Christians that we know from work. We like to, we like to fellowship in the lobby and in homes. And we're pretty good at number two. I think we downplay number one, spending time alone. I would dare say that most of us don't get the, the rest that we need. That we don't spend time with the Father as often as we should. And so I think we tend to downplay that. And the third, reaching out to the lost, I think we struggle with. We find it very difficult to reach out to people that are far from God. And yet if we want to be the hands and feet of Jesus, that is exactly what we have to do. We have to be, get time alone. Because you can't pour out what you haven't filled up with. You got to spend time with community. We need the support of one another. But if we're not using our time alone and our time with others to then energize us and fuel us to go out and reach people far from God, then we've missed our calling. Second, play, se second question we ask is, what did Jesus do? He loved every single person he came in contact with. Regardless of their nationality, regardless of their political affiliation, regardless of their lifestyle, he loved them, he served them, and he offered forgiveness to them. We may not be of this world, but God has left us here to be sent into this world in order to love others as Jesus loved us. Third thing, third question, how did Jesus feel? When he looked about upon the world, Scripture says that he had care and compassion for people. He got angry when he saw injustice. He was motivated by a heart for people. We have to ask ourselves, what motivates us? Now, I just want you to imagine just for a moment. Imagine what God could do. Imagine just for a moment what could happen if freedom, if this church was known for those three things. Going where Jesus went. Doing what Jesus did. Feeling what Jesus felt. What could God do? What would God do if each and every one of us would commit to say, you know what, I'm going to go where Jesus went. I'm going to do what Jesus did. I'm going to have a heart for people like Jesus had a heart for people. And listen, church, that's what he expects of us. That's what he expects of each and every one of us. Our calling is to follow him. Regardless of what your occupation is, regardless of what 
your, your, what your family dynamic is. Regardless of anything in your life, our calling is to follow him, to be his hands and to be his feet. He expects each and every one of us to get in the game. He expects each and every one of us to go where we live, work, and play and carry the gospel. His desire for each and every one of us is to be used for his redemptive purposes. Question, how are we going to respond? Father, we come before you and we look at the life of Joseph and we see this this amazing story of how you worked and how you moved and how you did what only you can do and orchestrated what only you can orchestrate. And so often, I know I look at this story and I see it as, as a big payoff for Joseph. And yet, Joseph, when he looks at this story, he realizes that it's still not his home. That as good as it gets in Egypt, that's not where he belongs. He belongs in the land of promise. And yet, God, through your providence and through your power, you orchestrate the, the laws of nature with a famine and, and the free will of men selling Joseph into slavery in order to work out and work through your redemptive purposes. And so, Father, first of all, I want to I just pray for those that do not know you as, as their, their Lord and their Savior. Lord, I pray that today they would see that God did all of this in the life of Joseph in order to redeem and rescue them through the cross of Jesus Christ. That by Joseph going through all that he went through, it preserved the promised seed of the Messiah. And that Messiah, Jesus, lived the life we could not live, and he died the death that all of us deserve. And so, Father, I pray for those that don't know you yet, that today they would see that your plan of salvation has been going on for a long, long time, and it is meant for them. And, Father, I pray for each of us as followers of Christ, that as a church, as individual followers of Jesus, that we would not conform to the pattern of this world. That we would live as Joseph lived in the land of Egypt. That we would live by our convictions. That we would live a life of holiness and righteousness in the midst of our lost and dying world. And Father, I pray for our church. I pray that we would be known for going where Jesus would go for doing what Jesus would do and loving and having feeling like Jesus felt towards people that were lost and dying and sinners and the reality is Father we can only do it by your grace that can only happen by your power your spirit working in and through us. And we ask that you help us to do it. In Jesus' name, amen. Church, we're going to have a time of response. And I don't know what the Spirit of the Lord is pressing in on you right now. I don't know if it's if it's if He's pressing in on you to respond and, and just coming up to this altar and praying for your lost neighbors, lost co-workers. I don't know, maybe there's something you've been waiting on for 17,520 hours. 
And maybe you just need to come and lay that at the feet of Jesus and say, Jesus, I don't know why I'm still waiting, but I know you're in control. I know you're sovereign. Perhaps some of us need to repent of having a heart that is hard towards people that are far from God. I don't know how the Spirit's calling you to respond, but I want to just give us an opportunity to respond. And we're also going to have communion. So we've got four stations set up. And I want us to use communion as a reminder that the reason we take communion is because through Joseph, God preserved the family line of the Messiah of Jesus who died on the cross for our sins whose body was broken whose blood was shed so that you and I could be redeemed so that we could have eternal life and when we take communion today let's remember that as we reflect on the life of Joseph and the fact that God did all of that for us for you So however the Spirit leads you to respond, respond. And let's just worship Him and be willing to go where He went, do what He did, and feel what He felt for those that are on the outside.